Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. Uh, Just a quick note to say that we recorded this episode before the coronavirus pandemic was really a thing. So you'll notice that we don't mention it at all. We have a new episode that we're going to record in about a week. So that'll come out in two weeks from when you're hearing this on Wednesday, uh, where we are going to be talking about that, among other things. But for now, we hope that you enjoy this episode as a distraction from all the crazy stuff that's been going on. With that, here's the episode. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enzlecht. How are you, Mickey? I'm doing well, and uh, I'm even better than normal because uh, we have none other than Elizabeth Page Gould with us uh, as a guest today. And uh, Liz always makes me happy, so it's just it's wonderful that you're here, Liz. Thanks for coming on again. Ah, uh, Hello. Uh, so we've got, I think, an interesting show uh, today. Uh, we'll talk about all kinds of things. But first, I just want to say that, you know, off air, um, I asked you, Yoel, if you were hungover and you said uh, yes. I Yeah, I, I had two drinks last night and apparently that's enough for me these days. Uh, yeah, and uh, I have to say, I'm impressed that you were able to sense that. It's like... You know, it's like a long marriage, you know, you start to just pick up each other's moods, I guess. Yeah, that's right. It's like it sense, you know, yeah, it's not a, quite as chipper as normal, a bit kind of dragging a bit. And then I was just kind of, I, I thought it was a guest from the, you know, out of the dark. And no, you're, you're actually hungover. You were spot on. Yeah, no, I've been hungover all day and uh, it sucks and my head hurts. So uh, I'm not drinking beer. I should disclose this just to be transparent. This is tea that I have in my cup here. And I assume that you're going to mock me for that. I'll definitely mock you. I, I believe uh, this is... Is it the second show in a row you're drinking tea, or maybe second out of three? No, no, I was drinking. I was drinking a hot toddy, uh, not this last one, but the one before. But that has whiskey in it, so I want at least partial credit there. And then the last one we were drinking beers, and that was another day drinking one in the afternoon, actually, uh, last weekend. And I did kind of wake up with a hangover then too. So basically, I can't drink at all anymore, and it sucks. Now, I don't think I need to introduce uh, our listeners to Liz uh, because, well, you've, you've been on, uh, this will be your third appearance, which makes you our number one guest. And that's how it always has to be. You have to be our number one guest, our most frequent guest. I'm pretty pleased with that. That's a goal I have personally in Excellent. my life. <laughs> Excellent. Well, goal, uh, goal being met right now. So, and uh, you know, I won't introduce you, Liz, other than to say you're awesome. You're um, uh, the Canada Research Chair in Social Psychophysiology. You're the the PI of the Social Psychophysiological Research and Quantitative Methods Laboratory, so the Sparkle Lab. Um, no, I'm pretty impressed you got the whole title because this, yeah, the title was mostly for the acronym. So. Yes, the sparkle. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. It does work. Um, and it helps that I have it right in front of me. So I, I'm, I'm sometimes able to read. Prepared. Yes. <laughs> so shall we uh, maybe talk about what we're drinking? Yeah, let's do. Uh, okay, so um, maybe I'll start. Uh, so first, this is another, uh, yet again, another uh, listener-donated beer. This one is donated by my uh, amazing student, Greg Depoe. Um, 
who I say he's amazing because he is one of the nicest people I know. And I'm saying this with Liz in the room, who's also one of the nicest people I know. Um, he's just such a generous soul, uh, just so pro-social. And he studies empathy and pro-sociality, just totally fits. Um, so, uh, Greg, thank you very much. Uh, he, he, he's from, uh, British Columbia from BC and he brought us a bunch of, uh, stouts and maybe some porters as well. Um, and what I've got here is something called interstate love song, um, which is a chocolate oyster stout from steel and oak brewing company. Um, and it's a very, very large bottle, larger than our normal bottle, but we'll, uh, I promise to get through too. Uh, 5.8% alcohol by volume. Um, and uh, that's it. That's all I got. Uh, what do you have, Liz? Yes. So I also have courtesy of Greg DePal. Very grateful for, uh, you know, for the drink. Um, I have a Sasquatch Stout here from the Old Yale Brewing Company. And it is chocolate, coffee, and mystery in this bottle. 650 milliliters, 5.0% alcohol per volume. Um, all right, so shall we? Uh, I think we've got an interesting show. We, um, I think we had uh, a plan, but the plan has gone a bit sideways. So, what was our plan, Yoel? Uh, so our plan was we would each tackle a topic. Uh, you were going to talk about fatherhood. Uh, Liz was going to talk about motherhood. And uh, I was going to talk about not having children. I did my job, but you guys, I guess, came up with some crazy shit. Yes, we had our own versions of uh, fatherhood slash and motherhood. Um, so but I think that's I did research. I worked. I did research. I just don't know that it ended where it was, you know, at the goal. Right. But that's okay. I mean, the, the point here is to have an interesting conversation, and, and I and I hope we'll have one. I'm pretty sure we will. But before we get there, um, very briefly, uh, you all and I, and Liz, you can you can jump in if you'd like, but uh, we kind of sprung this on you last minute. So if you don't talk that much, that's okay. Um, we're going to discuss very quickly an article that uh, a few of us read. Uh, we have a faculty reading group, and a few of us read it uh, last week, and um, I absolutely adored the article. I thought it was excellent, and I thought it'd be fun to just talk about it briefly. So the article is called uh, Concept Creep, Psychology's Expanding Concepts of Harm and Pathology, uh, and it's written by Nick Haslam, who's at uh, the University of Melbourne uh, in the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. So essentially, this this article, and again, just really briefly, um, is about the concept of concept creep, this, this, this notion of us having concepts in psychology and how they expand, how they change in scope um, over time. And he actually described two ways in which uh, concepts uh, tend to creep. He talked about uh, what he called horizontal expansion. And by that, he means uh, a concept that captures qualitatively new phenomenon, um, a phenomenon that they were not originally intended to capture. Um, and he talks as well about vertical expansion, which is uh, capturing quantitatively less extreme phenomenon that are, again, kind of part of this concept. And uh, really, the, the, so he kind of defines what he means by concept creep. He kind of defines these two dimensions of it. And then for the, re the remainder of the article, he goes through, I believe, six case studies, six examples of uh, what he uh, construes to be concept creep. And um, without, you know, exhausting them, uh, he talks about, for example, the concept of abuse. 
So the concept of abuse was, I think, first meant to describe, I think, child abuse, um, and uh, then kind of expanded to be abuse between two adults or even two children, potentially. And then it expanded vertically to include different kinds of abuse, uh, including neglect. Neglect being the omission, the omission of care, uh, that that also becomes, uh, falls under the abuse uh, label. Uh, another one is bullying. Um, so bullying had a very, very explicit definition, usually involved an intentional, an intentional act of harm, where there was a, a power difference, um, the actions are repeated, um, and um, there might be some other uh, a facet in there that I'm forgetting now. Um, but now it's grown to include, um, you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be a power imbalance. It doesn't necessarily need to be uh, repeated. Um, and now the concept of bullying has... Um, I feel it really has changed quite a bit. So, so my, my kids, for example, they learn a lot about bullying in school, and I think that's great. Um, good to avoid that in schools. But it seems like they define even, um, uh, you know, my kids will sometimes define even critical comments as bullying. When they, those could be criticism or they could be, you know, um, saying something not nice, but it seems to be a stretch to call it bullying. So as he goes through examples, another example, I mean, one last one that I'll give is he talks about uh, prejudice. And this is, falls under our purview, purview of, of uh, social psychologists. And um, I think classically it was defined, well, typically it was defined really with regards to two specific groups, uh, typically uh, black people in the United States and Jews. And then it's, it's expanded horizontally to include any kind of stigmatized group. So it could be um, gay people, it could be uh, uh, women, it could be Muslims, um, uh, but it's also expanded vertically to include more subtle forms of prejudice. So even, you know, aversive prejudice, implicit prejudice, uh, where you might not even be conscious that you're uh, engaging in these kind of actions or behaviors that are deemed to be um, a prejudice uh, on the part of the, uh, of the targets. Um, even so much so that now we have a term called microaggressions, where there might not be an intention and an objective observer might not even be sure there is an act of prejudice going on, but some people might label that as, as, as prejudice. So anyhow, it's, I think an interesting analysis, and he kind of, and he has some ideas about why um, concept creep occurs. So I'll, I'll stop talking for a little bit, but um, Yuel, what did you think of the article? And, and yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, really thought provoking. Um, you know, by its nature, it, it, it's some examples, right? And he doesn't, Haslam doesn't pretend that those examples are chosen in any way systematically. He doesn't pretend that they're exhaustive. So then I think naturally you could ask, well, is it that all concepts creep over time? Is it something about these particular concepts? What should we conclude from the fact that they're all negative? Can we think of negative concepts that have actually contracted rather than expanded over time and, and what differentiates those? Yeah, that's right. So I, mean, I think he actually, it's kind of interesting because he starts out the article talking about deviancy. Um, but that might be, and, and, and how that has, there might be some concept creep there. But I think in, in my estimation and the estimation of many others, um, it seems like there are fewer things that are considered deviant these days. I think if you, you know, deviant, for example, sexual behavior 50 years ago would include all kinds of things that we would deem very normal and even vanilla by today's standards. Um, but, uh, but now they're not considered deviant whatsoever. I mean, they're normalized. I mean, we just last week we heard a talk about, um, consensual non-monogamy. Uh, that's, 
I don't think considered deviant anymore. Um, I guess it, I mean, yeah, I don't think so. So um, probably depends on your social group. Yeah, I, I guess it depends. Yeah, what, what group you're talking about. But but the fact that it's even brought up in in a in a lecture uh, suggests that it's at least by some people it's not considered deviant anymore. Um, so it's interesting. But you know, again, did he cherry pick some examples? Um, Right. So what do we make of the fact that I mean, he points this out, that these are all these the, – his examples are all consistent with stuff that liberals don't like, right? So is that a part of the phenomenon? Is that just the examples that he happened to pick? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question because, I mean, he, he clearly um, – uh, the examples he picked, all one could argue, uh, they kind of represent a liberal moral agenda. Um, you know, with liberals being concerned with uh, reduction of harm, and many of these concepts that he picked were um, kind of uh, picking up on categories of things where smaller and smaller things are considered harmful. Um, so I, I suppose, you know, maybe that's true. There's an expansion of, uh, of what we consider harmful. Um, but, and maybe it's because I'm liberal. I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I think, um, uh, to the extent that we care about reducing harm, and I think conservatives and liberals care about reducing harm, um, it's good that we pick up on smaller and smaller things as being potentially harmful, uh, so that our society becomes better. Well, but it's possible that if he used uh, non-liberal examples, that he wouldn't come to the conclusion that concepts tend to creep in this particular direction towards increasing sensitivity to harm, right? Uh, so, you know, if we think about, like, how concept creep, uh, you know, applies to the expanding definitions of... Um, you know, legal interference in reproductive rights and things like that, you know, what we can and can't have access to. That's that would be not a liberal issue per se. Yeah, that's right. Well, what did you think of that in terms of what he included and not in, and didn't include you? I mean, I think it's interesting to think about these as kind of case studies. I don't think that he would want to pretend that they're in any way a systematic representation. Um, and you know, I, I think then your job is to think about like, well, what is the commonality that all of these have? And, you know, can we think of counterexamples, uh, situations where concepts rather than, you know, expand, contract? Um, and what does that tell us? So uh, I think uh, our colleague uh, Becca Neal had an interesting observation that maybe this just reflects like what as a society we, society do we think is important to care about, right? So we've become more focused on, for example, harms to children, and therefore it makes sense that we would differentiate harms to children more finely, right? And that we would be more sensitive to even smaller harms to children. Uh, in the same way, we as a society have become less sensitive to non-mainstream sexual behavior. And therefore, it makes sense that our category of uh, deviancy or perversion would have shrunk quite a bit because it just reflects what do we care about as a culture. Um, so I, I think that's a, an interesting way to look at it. And I think it uh, it's consistent with the idea that I have is that you know, over the last 50 years, we've moved in what I would call like the liberal direction of expanding the moral circle, worrying more about harms, worrying more about socially marginalized groups and so on. And so like, then it's not surprising that all of these example, examples would be like, oh, it seems like this is stuff that liberals care about. Because in fact, as a society, that's the direction that we've 
moved in. So I thought that was an interesting way to, to think about how are all of these kind of um, similar to each other. Right. That is interesting. And I mean, maybe not as well, it kind of, I mean, in some sense, the, the, the paper, I'm not sure he, he argue, he suge- he's suggesting these are problems, but it does seem a little bit like he's critiquing uh, the fact that these concepts are changing and, and, and maybe suggesting that there, there could be some negative uh, uh, ramifications of this concept. I mean, to be fair to him, I think he, he tried to be even-handed. He tried to argue, suggest that here are some of the positives of this and here are some of the negatives. Um, but if I was to read his mind, it seems like he's uh, more concerned with the negative ramifications. Um, but maybe we don't need to be too concerned about this because, well, language is constantly evolving and changing, To as you said, Yoel, to reflect... Uh, the items of our day, the items that we think are important, and why should our concepts stay static? Yeah, I would even argue that that puts a lot of power in the hands of whomever first came up with a construct in terms of defining it and saying this is the total space of this construct, right? Whereas the person who did that um, wouldn't necessarily, or would give varying levels of uh, thought to the development of that construct. So some people are going to be, you know, really mapping out their, you know, nomological network and all of those things, whereas other people are just, you know, have, have, you know, just randomly throwing things together. So, um, yes, but if there is no concept creep, then whatever was the original conception of that concept is one that we have to, that we're beholden to at a greater rate. I would say concept creep represents a maturity of, you know, collective human thought, really, right? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. I mean, so he, um, when he, when he talked about bullying, he, he, he suggested that the concept of cyberbullying is an example of horizontal concept creep. Because, of course, I th- I, apparently the, the concept of bullying uh, was, I hope I'm not mistaken here, I think was, was first popularized in Sweden and a lot of researchers from Sweden talking about it and they conceptualized it a certain way. And this was like, I think, in the 70s. And, of course, there was no cyberbullying in the 70s. And it seems a stretch to argue that cyberbullying is fundamentally different than regular bullying. Yes, we've got a cyber in front of it, but it's just a a different medium now. I feel like this is a great time to get into whatever crazy shit you guys researched. And I got to say, I'm really curious to hear what you came up with. So who wants to go first? I think uh, Liz is our guest. You have to go first. All right. Uh, Okay. So should I just like launch into it? I think you should say how you got to where you ended up. Okay. So I was uh, tasked with talking about motherhood and this is a broad concept. Um, and so I asked uh, my, my partner, my, the love of my life in um, and my baby daddy, uh, what would be something that you would be interested to hear about like parenthood in general? You know, I mean, obviously he's a, He's a father, not a mother, but still, you know, I was like, is there anything that you wouldn't be bored to hear someone talk about their experiences with? And he was like, no. So. (laughs) (laughs) So you bored by everything? (laughs) Yeah. But then I was like, well, what about, you know, conspiracies about fertility rates and like, you know, transnational warfare or whatever. And he was like, no, that would be cool. So Wait, I so kind of went one direction you. with that. So so we have Ian to thank for this. Basically. Yes, yes. It's entirely okay. his fault because then I decided to uh, invest my time looking into that a little bit. 
Um, but then also we can blame Ian because um, he wrote a book in 2017. This is Ian Dennis Miller called Routine. And which I've read somewhat uh, bits of, and I was fascinated by it. Amazing. So it's basically a reflection on the various aspects of routine that come in in daily life. And if you can kind of like routinize all aspects of life itself, um, then, you know, there's a certain uh, level of uh, peace there, essentially. So in routine, Ian speaks about dynasty um, and the issues of dynasty. So, on the one hand, uh, there is this, and these are all Ian's ideas, but there's this idea of um, your life and afterlife maybe being defined entirely in a genetic way. So you live as long as your DNA in a you know, direct sense lives. So we think we talk about uh, the house of Methuselah in, you know, the Old Testament or, you know, the uh, Torah, whatever you're going to say. Um, but uh, where this guy supposedly lived for more than 900 years, right? And do we really believe that one individual lived for more than 900 years? Well, I'm sure that some people out there would be like, yes, I believe that. But uh, instead, could it be that it was really like the house of Methuselah, Right. It was this idea of this intergenerational um, immortality that exists from these people who more or less share your face and inherit your wealth as it goes forward and have these resources and this DNA programming in order to sort of end up in a certain place, right? And so then you can have a house that lives for 900 years. Um, but... What Ian discusses in routine is how we have millennia that demonstrate to us that dynasties fundamentally fail. Subsequent generations always become lazy and crass um, and uncaring. And so perhaps the best that you want to leave to your future generations is an educational legacy and enough uh, to have them have at least an, an, an ideally a neutral net worth, right? So no student loans, that kind of thing, but they have an education and that's it. And they're not in debt. Um, so anyway, so I was thinking all about those kind of things when it comes to kids, because the whole question is like, when it comes to motherhood, why would anyone have children in the first place? And I think there's this desire to live for a long time that has driven motherhood for me. Can I can I interject a little bit in terms of your own motivation? I know it's hard to like you know break it down to parse you know why we want things sometimes, but did that enter your calculus? So you know actually passing on your DNA to the next generation that was part of it, or was it more like I just really want to have kids? I can't explain it, and you know I'm just going to do it. 100% passing on my DNA was the reason that I had children because I did not want to. I thought that raising kids would be horrible and that I would not be good at it and it would not be a pleasant experience that, you know, maybe I would be rewarded when I'm in, you know, when the kids are in their 20s and we can finally drink beer together on the side of a lake or something like that. And up until that point, it would just be like complete hell obnoxious non-rewarding uh, luckily i was wrong but that is what i thought and so no i wanted to have kids i wanted to have two kids so that like god forbid but one of them could die 
I'm serious. And then, you know, one at least and at least one would procreate. And so that was the idea. Have two kids, at least one procreates. And we're going to find out who that is. Because currently my uh, three-year-old daughter uh, tends to tell me that my eight-month-old baby is going to be either an uncle or a grandfather. So we're going to find out. (laughs) (laughs) So you're willing to, like, uh, given your thankfully now incorrect forecast, but you're willing to uh, pay 20 years of labor, indentured servitude, uh, just to pass your DNA? Why? Definitely. Uh, Because... I'm seeking immortality two ways. Sorry, I feel like maybe I've even discussed this before, but there's a two-pronged approach towards immortality. The first prong is what I seek, you know, in part through our research and through our work. So this is the desire to contribute to the greater human dialogue, but that can all go south and we can lose, you know, our entire library of knowledge, right? And you could have some cultural apocalypse. And then the only thing that would remain important at that point was DNA, in terms of my immortality. And so in order to um, have a backup for the you know, post-apocalyptic melee, I needed to have kids, which is also why you need to have two, again, because you need to have the non-redundant backup copy. So I wonder you all, should we uh, take a quick break and then pick it up uh, post-break? That sounds great. The slow passage of time. I look forward to it. <laughs> Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. We're sponsored this week by The Great Courses Plus. Now, what is that? It's an educational streaming service that makes learning easy and accessible with thousands of lectures on practically any topic you can think of that give you objective, in-depth information from some of the best teachers in the world. Now, especially nowadays where you might be finding yourself indoors with more time on your hands, what a great opportunity to learn about some new things at your own pace and on whatever device you choose to use. So this week, I've been exploring the great ideas of philosophy, second edition, taught by Daniel Robinson, PhD. Uh, He's a member of the philosophy faculty at Oxford University and uh, professor emeritus at Georgetown University. And this is kind of a survey course on philosophy, um, starting with the Greeks, but covering uh, Western philosophy, uh, issues in ethics. Islam, lots of other interesting stuff. And this dude, man, like he, A, like really looks like a philosophy professor, like giant beard and everything, just got like the philosophy professor manner down and super interesting, super engaging content. So if this is something that feels uh, appealing to you that you'd like to check out, um, we have a very nice offer for you. Uh, You have access to a full month for free when you sign up for uh, through our special URL. So how do you do that? Uh, you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers, B-E-E-R-S. Uh, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Sign up through that URL to get your free month and to support our show. So thanks for listening and back to the episode. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So you can find us on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us or DM us. That will uh, that will get to both of us. We both check that account. If you'd rather email, you can email us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that will go to both of us. Uh, finally, our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm. So you can listen to any of our episodes there and also drop us a note using our contact form there if you are so inclined. 
Uh, finally, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover it. Uh, Mickey, uh, do you have anything to add? No, other than just my my usual refrain of we uh, we love it when you guys leave reviews. Uh, so obviously, you know, rating us is great, uh, but the written reviews uh, we enjoy quite a bit. So please uh, do those if you enjoy the show. Indeed. Uh, okay, so you guys switched beers. Uh, do you want to talk about what's up next for you? Yes, I would. Uh, so this is again uh, another. These are gifts from Greg Depoe, who uh, once again a lovely human being, uh, someone who I'm so happy is in my lab. Um, and again, these are beers he brought with him from British Columbia. Uh, so this is something called a Vertical Winter Ale from Tree Brewing Company. And I love the uh, the motto of Tree Brewing Company, which is uh, the best things in life are tree. Uh, so other than it being a winter ale, I have no other information about this beer. So I look forward to drinking it. Indeed. And uh, I want to say that uh, I'm being filled with total warm fuzzies with your kind words about Greg or whatever. It's like so sweet. Anyway, so um, Greg also graced us apparently with this Spy Raspberry Porter, also from the Tree Brewing Company. Uh, again, we have 5% uh, alcohol per volume. Yeah, good old tall can here. Let's, Let's do it again. Oh, yes. The, the, oh, the, that's the, beautiful. The lovely sound. And I did not actually spill on my laptop this time. For once. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, I, 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 I learn. I do, in fact, uh, get better with age. You do. You do. You like a fine wine. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, Mickey, I think we were talking uh, off air about uh, you wanted to talk about some of the stuff that you've been researching. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So uh, so Liz had her kind of wacky take on motherhood, which we appreciated. Um, I, um, I was tasked with fatherhood, and I also kind of did a kind of wacky take a little bit. And um, I'm not exactly sure why my mind went here, but uh, I was curious about um, a particularly, one might argue, an unsympathetic group. Um, and this is the group of, of fathers, uh, so not just men specifically, but like fathers, um, who leave their families. Um, and the reason I thought about this is, is it seems like it's a common trope in Hollywood movies, in fiction, um, of, you know, typically from the perspective of the child, but sometimes of the mother, where, you know, the, the father's gone, mysteriously gone. Um, we don't know what happened to him, uh, where he is. Um, and I was curious to know about, you know, who, who these men are. Um, so again, so I'm not, I'm not so interested in, uh, you know, men who break up with uh, their partners, uh, their, their wives, um, but specifically if they have a family, if they've got kids, and especially if the kids are young, um, leaving their families. And I think my mind went to a dark place. My mind was like, oh, these are maybe people who uh, have drug or alcohol problems. Uh, they maybe have, uh, they just don't like themselves and they decide to leave uh, because they think they're, Kids would be better off without them. Um, that's where my, where my mind went. Uh, so I was just curious to see what what was out there about uh, men like this. 
And um, the long and the short of it is I found exceedingly little. Uh, I found very little information. What I was, what I was hoping to find, and, 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 you know, to be honest, I only did a little bit of research. I didn't spend hours and hours on this. Um, I only love this podcast so much. Uh, but uh, I... I didn't find that much. What I was looking for would have been like an, an ethnography, an ethnography with, you know, case studies, qualitative research of men who've left their families and why did they leave their families? Uh, what regrets did they have, if any? Um, that sort of thing. But what I did find were, were a couple of essays and, uh, I'll, I can, I'll, maybe I'll talk about the, 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 these two essays. Um, I'm not exactly sure what order to present them in. I will present, uh, well, I'll present one. Uh, I'll present this one first. This is from this, uh, it's a, it's a mommy blog. There's a whole genre of, of blogs for moms. And this one's called Mamma Mia. And it's written by Anonymous. So uh, it's a man uh, who does not want to be identified. And the title of his uh, essay is, I had the perfect wife and family, but I left it all for another woman. And, you know, it's a quite heartfelt uh, essay. And... But I'm not gonna lie. I, I, I wasn't particularly sympathetic to him. I, 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 I saw his point, but in the end, I wasn't so sure. So essentially, he argued that uh, the reason he left his his wife and his family, young family, was because he was feeling neglected by by his partner. Um, his partner, um, I think. Uh, you know, she was his true, uh, her true love and loved him with all her heart, or so he says. And as soon as, you know, baby number one and then baby number two came on the scene, she, I don't want to say withdrew her love, but he no longer felt the love. And he felt he was to some extent replaced by the children. And I don't think that's an uncommon experience to have, um, uh, to feel this way, at least for men. Uh but he felt, yeah, he felt replaced. He felt like he wasn't uh, receiving the affection. He he made no mention of sex. It was more about love. It was more about affection, intimacy, closeness, caring, warmth, um, that he no longer had those things. Um, his wife uh, or partner, um, you know, had no time for him anymore and, and wanted to spend all her time caring for her, her children, their children. And then, uh, you know, at work, he had, he had a friend. It was, started out as a friendship with uh, a coworker. And uh, because he wasn't feeling the love at home, uh, at some point that friendship turned into something more. It turned into an affair that he had. And eventually he left his wife and kids for uh, this other woman. Now, I think up until now, I think that we can have some some sympathy. I guess. I mean, it, I guess it 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 happens that you know he, he's feeling he does not feeling loved, not feeling cherished, and and that's not a great place to be in. Um, and maybe in that situation, as long as he's communicated with his wife, I mean, I, I hope that he's, he's he made efforts to express his desire and his need. If he didn't, then that's on him. Um, he should have done that. Um, uh, yeah. So, anyways, I, I, he, he whatever happened, he, he you know he, he he went to this this other woman. Now, the the end of the story, the end of the essay is like you know 
maybe the readers left wondering what happened with this other relationship. And that one didn't work out either. And that one didn't work out because, oh, he didn't realize that this woman had anxiety and that was too much to bear. And like, as soon as he wrote that, I'm like, dude, you're a fucking douche. Like, I mean, like, okay, so uh, we're all human. We're all imperfect. We all have problems. I mean, he didn't describe it as this, you know, terrible, you know, uh, you know, mental disorder that this woman had. It was just like the way he described it was regular kind of ups and downs that we all experience. And he, and he left her anyway. So anyways, it was just, I, I was not left uh, quenched. You know, I, I got some sense there that, you know, sure, we all want affection. We all want love. We all want to feel special. And I think sometimes for men, they can feel replaced by their children. Um, but that's a fucking big step to, you know, because I, I don't know. I guess why I'm curious about this is because it's to, in my books and, and maybe I'm a prude. Uh, I'm, a, you know, morally grandstanding here. Um I think it's such a big step to leave your family. It's one thing to leave a partner or to, to break up. It's another thing to 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 leave kids, especially young kids. Um, and to me, you have to have pretty damn good reasons because um, it's not just about you anymore. Yeah. So I think this is an interesting question. So in your opinion, if you're in a relationship that's just okay, like fine, you don't fight or anything. They're not a terrible person, but they're sort of mediocre and you feel unfulfilled. Is it your duty to stay for the children if you have children? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't have a good answer. Um, I think duty is too strong of a word. Um, I think I think you have to consider yourself. You can't be completely selfish, uh, self, uh, selfless. Sorry. Um, and also, I think your kids will be impacted if you're in a relationship that's loveless or or maybe there's high high conflict relationship that you stay completely for the children um as someone who is a child of, of such a relationship uh it's not always great um so i don't think it's your duty but i think you got to work i think you got to you got to try um i think you have to yeah you, you have to you have to realize this once you bring kids into the world um it's no it's not just about you anymore there's other people in there whose like lives you 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 shape so fundamentally, um, and I think you have to think beyond you. Now that doesn't mean you completely sacrifice yourself for 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 your kids, and you can still, of course, be involved with your kids. We we have, we have no idea this author. We have no idea about his involvement with his children. He might be the best dad, and then I think I might feel better about him. Um, but he didn't write it all. He didn't, he didn't write it all about his children at all. It was completely about his wife. Which, to me, says something. Well, what do you think, Yoel, uh, about, you know, I, I, I admit, I admit that I'm kind of, um, I think I'm old-fashioned in this way, uh, a prude. Uh, I, I, I think this notion of staying for the kids, um, I don't think it's a completely wrong idea. I don't think it's a completely right idea. I don't, I don't, again, I don't think you should completely sacrifice yourself for your children, Um but I think it's not it doesn't it's not it doesn't explain zero percent of the variance of why you should think about staying. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. And that's easy for me to say as somebody who doesn't have any children. But yeah, I, I think that when you have kids, uh it constrains your freedom and 
uh, that's normal and that's the way it should be, right? So, for example, like you might not be able to take your dream job in uh, Japan because your family is here and you can't move the kids there, right? And I, I don't think most people would say, oh, that's a terrible thing. Uh, it, somehow when it's about like romantic fulfillment or, uh, you know, finding your relationship with your partner to be unsatisfying their people, I just think it's interesting. You have more of a, sometimes people have a feeling like, well, you're entitled to that, right? So like my like, okay, but not per particularly fulfilling relationship, like I deserve more than that. Like maybe you don't, you know, maybe... Assuming that there's no like conflict is a different story, right? But if you just like like each other, but it's just fine, you know, like some of the magic is gone. It's like, well, yeah, you, you gotta suck it up, man. You had the kids, too bad. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of this depends on uh, what kind of dad you're gonna be out outside the relationship, right? So if and, and I've seen now modern families where the the the, the parents aren't together and. You know, both parents are so involved. They're, they've made it work. They're just not together anymore. Then I think, yeah, that's great. You know, I think you should try to find a relationship that works for you. Um, but, you know, you have this commitment. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a 20 year, 18 year commitment. Um, and as long as you're, you're, you, you uphold that part, I, there's no moral judgment on my part. But I guess I'm thinking of more the Hollywood uh, kind of villain here, uh, the villain dad, who's like, see you later, kids, and, and that's it. Maybe, you know, 30 years later, he comes back on the scene, you know, walking out of prison or whatever it is. Um, you, know, you know, but maybe that's just like a caricature. That's just not like maybe as, as often. Well, but I think that's obviously not okay, you know, clearly or, is, or as evidenced by our society laws, right? So you can't be a total uh, deadbeat parent. And this does apply to men and women, although obviously, you know, with men, it's a more common situation. But one way or the other, neither parent can just leave and not at least uh, provide financially. And this is evidence through your uh, wages get garnished, right? So um, or your taxes, it depends on where you are. But one way or the other, that's society saying, hey, you have to at least like pay for half of the expenses of the kid, um, especially if you're not paying, like providing for child care. Um, yeah. So in that way, society has said this is your minimum level of responsibility if you parent a child. Right, right. I guess I want more than the minimum. Like, so, uh, uh for me, I'm not sat, I'm not just satisfied with the monetary part, uh, although that's critically important. Um, I, again, I'm a traditionalist here. Uh, I'd want there to be some involvement if possible. Um, and I, I'm going to judge, a, you know, a parent, man or woman, but more typically a man, if they uh, abscond on their parental responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you abscond on your parental responsibilities such that you totally abandon your family, you know, I feel then at least you can't be ticked off if people judge you because that's just an obvious thing that is, you know, very basic in terms of our social, you know, fabric or what have you. Um but that doesn't mean that, yeah, there's a there's a variety of situations that lead you to that. And I do certainly find sympathy for those individuals because I assume that most of them regret it. Um, At least eventually. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe not immediately. Yeah. I assume that in the beginning, I, I assume that's a process. I bet you do in the very beginning. I bet you feel like scared or anxious in the very beginning. And then it gets normal and then you get to forget about it. And then you get this longing ache. That's what I assume is yeah. the situation. All right, so that's all I got for uh, you know the the men who who leave their families. But uh, so now we've got chapter three, Yoel. So what what do you have for us? Well, first of all, thank you. This is this has been fascinating. So I uh, somewhat boringly stuck pretty much to the thing that I was assigned, which is <laughs> to look at some research about childlessness. Um, and just to give context, uh, it's still quite uncommon uh, for people to not have children, uh, but the rates have gone up somewhat. Uh, so in the United States, for example, in 1976, which I guess is when this uh, particular measure first started being tracked, uh, the percentage of women ages uh, 40 to 44, so they're basically like post-reproductive age, more or less, who've never had children. In 76, that was 10%, and that went up to a high of 20% in 2006. And now it's back down a little bit. The latest data are from 2014, uh, back down to 15%. So it's still like over the 1976 number, obviously a 50% increase. Um, this in, is U.S.? Yeah, this is in the U.S. specifically, right? Um, and I it didn't look up data for other countries, but just looking at uh, the birth rates, um, a number of children per women, I would be surprised if it were very different in other uh, advanced democracies because they're all at about like, you know, in the 1.8, 1.7, 1.8 kids per woman range was obviously below replacement, which would be like 2.1, right? Um, so this is uh, a group that is certainly a minority that's gotten a bit bigger. And so I tried to look up some psychological research on, well, what have people studied around that? So I found a, a few things. Uh, the most interesting were actually qualitative projects where they found some people who had not had children and they asked them about their decision not to have children. Um, and I feel that this illustrated both as what I love about qualitative research and maybe what's a bit unsatisfying about it is that these two papers came to essentially opposite conclusions. Uh, now, you know, the samples are really different. One paper looked at Australian men only, a sample of, I, I think, like 10, 15 people that they interviewed. Um, and another paper looked at a slightly larger sample of Americans. And these were all people in the author's professional network. So you can see like a lot of like uh, psychiatrists and university professors in that sample. Uh, so basically, it seemed like she uh, just contacted people that she knew who were childless and then asked them to give the, give her recommendations for other childless people who might want to participate. You all, you want to be in a study? I, <laughs> I would love to be in the study. Nobody asked me. So anyway, uh, the, uh, the paper with the Australian dudes found essentially that this was uh, not a decision that they made at any one point in time and not something that, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, that it seemed like they were strongly committed to. Um, and they were more like, yeah, I haven't felt like it or it never really came up or it's not something that I'm like super excited about. But, you know, I could also see my mind changing. And in fact, so the way that they um, found these folks is there was a big like longitudinal study uh, and they... Uh, were people who at time 
whatever time point said, I'm not at all interested in having children. And then those people were contacted and uh, asked if they wanted to participate. And it turns out in that time, one of them had actually like gotten their partner pregnant, right? So it's like, it's not the most strongly held opinion. Uh, You know, it's kind of somewhat surprisingly given that they're choosing the most extreme like scale response. Um, And you talk to them and they, you know, they basically, it's exactly what you would expect for somebody who hasn't like sat down and been like, shall I have a child pros and cons, but who's sort of like, yeah, you know, I, I was never really that into it. It seems like there's a lot of downsides of like giving up my freedom to do the things that I want. Or maybe it was like my partner wasn't into it. At some point they had had generally a talk with their partner where they were like, either neither of us is that excited about it, or one of us really doesn't want to have kids and the other one like maybe would like them, but is willing to go along. Right. So this to me, like kind of cast out on the idea that this is like really a like definable group um, because it just seems like sort of people back into this. They're like, well, not that thrilled about it. And it happens that I wasn't with anybody who really like pressed the issue uh, slash never got anybody pregnant accidentally. Uh, <laughs> they do try to make like a thing of like a lot of these dudes had uninvolved fathers. There, I, there's a lot of cell A bias, right? Like maybe everybody's dad is uninvolved, right? Like, <laughs> there's no control group. Uh, but I think it was interesting just to like hear in their own words, you know, how how did people um, come to this point? I don't really want to say make this decision because it seems like, you know, that would be a little bit misleading. And uh, then the second paper, and we'll put all this in the show notes. So I'm not even going to bother. Well, before it. you go to the second paper, yeah, I, yeah. I have a question. Um, so... I mean, I find this very interesting because because it's focusing on the men, right? So I think I think you're right. The explicit decision there is none for for, for men. I mean, at least maybe up until a certain point, right? Is um, whereas for women, there's like a, a discrete time period after which it's, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible. Um, so there is a real decision for women and not for men. So it kind of makes sense that they're kind of just kind of fallen into that uh, category. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I I think that's probably part of the reason that guys could be more like, yeah, you know, well, I don't feel like it right now. Right. You can you imagine like I could change my mind. Dude, you have no option, man. It's not even a decision for you. Right. (laughs) You've been excluded from the uh, gene pool. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, some some other uh, interesting uh, tidbits. There's some stuff in here that just kind of like seem contradictory to me. So like uh, it says the paper says at point A, they also, meaning the men, reported largely positive attitudes to children. And then later they quote one of these guys as saying, let me just pull up the quote here, uh, <laughs> called his nephews, quote unquote, little terrors, <laughs> which is pretty great. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I occasionally will call my children little terrors. Yeah, you know uh, they can be. Certainly. We call our children the chaos monkeys, but it's the same concept. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's right. Yeah, it's what they. I, I, you know, for this kind of analysis with the men, I would have liked the uh, the researchers to go beyond the answers of the men themselves and get like informant ratings about them. So, like, how attractive is this man? Um, how likely would you, you know, given, you know, what you know about him very briefly, uh, would you want to date him? Um, so these are uh, maybe not hyper desirable people. Okay, so I have a purely anecdotal thing. But I feel like a number of my friends have chosen to be childless. And I feel that the people who have chosen to be childless, both the men and the women, 
Um, you know, don't get your head too big, UL. But I feel like they're particularly like beautiful people. So people that, you know, like look pretty and live nice lives. And um, and I assume that a big part of that decision is that, you know, like kids would just fuck up those lives. Right. You know, like everything that's white now will be white with a splatter, you know, and so it's just like meh. But um, but I also think they're particularly beautiful. Like this is definitely my own sample. But I feel like out of my friend circle, those who have chosen actively to not have children are ones who, you know, go and exercise regularly and stuff like that. Like it's not because they were undesirable individuals that they did not procreate. So I have a quick question about confound. Yeah. And that is, are they are these people who you are conjuring in your mind? Um, are they do they have partners or not? They do. I'm actually thinking to people where both members of the couple collectively decided that they were not having children. Okay, so that uh, uh, that defeats my uh, alternative explanation, which is they're still in the game. You know, yeah, they're yeah, still yeah. trying to attract partners and therefore doing this for instrumental reasons. No, I'm talking about people who've even coupled, and it was you know clearly some decision that they you know conversation that they had at some point and right made their they have a lot decision. more time. Yeah. Although I actually, from every single one of them, what I've learned is that you have this conversation super early in the dating cycle. So it's like in the first few dates, you're kind of like, dude, what's your feeling on kids? And if they want kids, you're like, I'm out. I do know one couple um, that are very traditional in a few ways, but where the woman married the man, knowing the man did not want kids. He was very clear about that. As the marriage progressed the woman discovered like realized basically that she had used to she she previously had wanted a great number of kids but it decided that this man you know she loved him so much that if he didn't want kids she was cool with it but then as she was getting a little older that biological clock was ticking um realized that if she were on her deathbed right that she would regret not having children so he was all super pissed for a while. He's like, dude, you changed the game on me, man. And they negotiated that she would essentially do all the work for the child care. And if she was willing to do that, that he would, you know, give her one kid, like he'd father one kid or whatever, um, or go for it anyway, one time. And they did that. And that was their deal. And that was what they stuck with. And she did all of the child care. Like he changed zero diapers. Um, And now he has a good relationship with the child. Now the child is, you know, grown to a certain age. Now he's cool with the kid and like can interact with the kid because actually kids do become more human earlier than you expect, but still. Um, But for a long time, it was very asymmetric in terms of the parenting And everybody was essentially cool with it because everybody entered that relationship in the, you know, under certain agreements. This sounds very much like what fathers were like, you know, in the 50s. Um, So, you know, uh, I heard these stories, uh, you know, once we had kids and, and, you know, dads are very much more involved now than they ever were. Um, and I heard a story of, of uh, from one of our my doesn't matter who, but like you know the generation before ours, 
the father had never changed a diaper in his life. And he's had, he had three kids and there was no formal agreement. There was no like, you know, I'm not doing anything, you know, I'm doing this for you. It was more like that was the norm. And I'm like, wow, fatherhood has changed dramatically. Um, uh, since then, uh, motherhood, not so much, but uh, fatherhood for sure. I think fatherhood definitely has. And in yeah. part, you know, one thing that even makes me proud, although in a kind of messed up way, but when my daughter is really upset, she'll, instead of kind of going like, mommy, 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 she does this thing where she, I mean, it's like soothing to her in some weird way, but you know, she'll say like, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, you know, and it's really that she's saying either one of you two <laughs> will satisfy me right now. And I think that's a wonderful thing um, because, you know, yeah, because she loves her father, too. And he wants to be involved and wants to be comforting to her or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's nice. Are you Al? We interrupted you. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. How Sorry. dare you? <laughs> I know. Well, I think that's kind of actually the way that these things kind of go. Yeah, definitely. Parents dominate the conversation, like in terms of policies you know politics society everything like sorry dude the childless get no voice that's right so not only are you privileged by our pronatalist society that's right you also railroad me in this conversation <laughs> and somehow feel that it's okay that's right <laughs> that's we right. feel morally vindicated in doing so <laughs> you know but seriously you've earned it so I do. I, I appreciate you creating the next generation of people who will take care of me when I'm old and decrepit. So, <laughs> you know, kudos to you. Totally. Uh, I'll teach them not to steal your valuables. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's very nice. Um, so, yeah, the, the last paper that I wanted to mention, um, and I, I think this is interesting because it does touch on the discussions that we had about generalizability. Um, an episode or two ago. So I, I saw a citation in one of these other papers that said, um, paraphrasing, but uh, people react to the childless with moral outrage. And I was like, whoa, that's kind of intense. Like, I haven't really experienced that. Like, certainly not to my face. Maybe people are outraged when I'm not around. I don't know. But so I read this paper um, that was cited in support of this claim, right? And this is a very broad claim, right? People and they, they, you know, the paragraph started with like stigma and then people respond with moral outrage to people who choose not to have children. Uh, so this paper and no shade thrown on this paper in particular, because I think it does stick to, you know, reporting what they did. But the, what they did is they gave some undergraduates. So first of all, undergraduates at a Midwestern university, um, a scenario that described a couple that was, I, I forget what it was, six, 10 years post-graduation, had either decided to have two kids or had decided to have zero kids. And then uh, the participants were asked to rate what extent the target made them feel disapproval, angry, outraged, annoyed, and disgusted using five-point scales where one would be not at all and five would be very much. And then if you look at the results, participants do indeed report significantly more moral outrage towards the targets who had chosen to have no children, but that mean is 1.37, right? So they're somewhere between not at all and I don't know what that second point was labeled a little <laughs> bit, right? And they're way more towards not at all. So basically the way I would describe this just descriptively would be to say people aren't morally outraged, 
right? And, you know, it's a D of 0.4. The effect is significant. This is not p-hacked, right? I believe these findings. But somehow this mutates now in the retelling to people are morally outraged by the childless. And I just thought that was such a perfect example of like how this generality of claims, not even necessarily on the part of the original author, but then on the part of people, scientists who writing for a scientific audience are describing these findings, just like it just blows up into this global claim. And then if you look at the specifics, it's like, well, that's not what was shown at all, right? So uh, I, I think that's uh, in these arguments about, you know, what are the statistical methods we should use? Um, how does this relate to philosophy of science? Like, I feel sometimes we lose sight of like the actual on the ground reality of how this stuff happens. And I think this is the modal way in which this stuff happens. Like there's a constrained finding and then in the retelling, it becomes much broader than it used to be. Uh, that paper angers me for like so many reasons. <laughs> go yeah, on, right? go on. Um, because I mean, like you, I mean, you said it all. So I'm just going to reiterate. But like, you know, one point two is it, was that the? I, I think it was like a one point three. Yeah, I mean, like that is not moral outraged at all. Um, undergraduates who uh, like might not have any have probably almost zero of them have kids, um, and for them to be judging this is is, is odd. Um, and uh, there was another – oh, and also it, it, this reminds me of another study, but the way they've even asked the question, the fact that like every single question is a negative evaluation of of all the scenarios they see, they know the auth the, the experimenters are, are, are wanting some variance in outrage. Um, so it's almost like guaranteed you're going to get some difference, however minor – um, and then we make some big crazy claim out of it. I mean, it's it's between, right? So I don't know to what extent they they're gonna infer that. Um, I mean, I would say like it's practically guaranteed that if you like present people with a description of somebody who does something slightly non-normative, which is certainly like choosing not to have kids is non-normative in the statistical sense, uh, and you let them express some amount of negativity towards that person, that at least some people are gonna be a little bit more negative, right? That seems like. Well, how could it be otherwise, right? I'm not blaming the author as as much as the interpretation from other authors about the generality of this kind of finding. Um, and I, okay, the between subject is, is you know, I agree makes, with that. Yeah, yeah. Ma makes it a bit better. Um, but nonetheless, if you only give negative evaluations, assuming that's the case, because I haven't read the paper. So if you just give a bunch of negative scales and you're right, it's slightly counter-normative, you're going to get negative stuff. If you ask a bunch of other questions, um, maybe you wouldn't get it as much. So this is like kind of gets at this idea of um, the the idea from Aguirre that you can find so you can find support for pretty much any idea if you test it, you know, in certain ways uh, kind of thing. Anyways, I, I'm not... I, yeah, I'm, actually, I'm not... Now, now that you mentioned that, um, suppose that attitudes on this are just polarized. So there's some people who think it's bad not to have children, and there's other people who think it's great, who in fact think it's praiseworthy because, I don't know, anti-natalism or you're not burdening the planet or whatever. You're not giving the approvers the chance to express it, right? Because these questions are scaled such that you can only disapprove. So you can disapprove zero or you can disapprove a little or a lot, right? So it is actually designed to only find disapproval, which that's not great. Yeah, I will say that I was thinking, you know, if anything, I would think the moral outrage might come from the other side, right? Because um, 
if anything, uh, I know people who are choosing to be childless in part because of this whole sustainability and climate change thing. And so for that, that was another direction where my research went, which was, you know, what is the population that we need in order to be sustainable, right, for this earth? And apparently the UN looked into this in 2012 and it reviewed a number of different estimates, but the most common estimate among them was 8 billion people, which is a little bit more than we have today. So at the very least, if everybody, if every woman or the average fertility rate is usually by women. So if every woman has a fertility rate of about two, that would be a replacement rate, assuming she only has one partner. But of course, if she has two partners, then I guess she needs three in order to replace, but whatever. Um, so, uh, so I think that the sustainability argument is a very interesting one. Um, and and that's why, you know, I was looking into these things and they were saying, like, if we reduce population growth by 1.1 billion people over the next 30 years so that we have a population of 8 billion humans in 2050 instead of the projected 9.1 billion humans, then we would save about 1 to 2 billion tons of carbon annually by 2050, which works out to about like 1 ton of carbon per additional person or whatever. Um, so that's something to consider. And then also, yeah, if we have this goal of 8 billion, how do we maintain it? And the way to maintain it without like killing anybody is actually through fertility, Right. It's by just controlling how many people are born, and then we don't need any form of mass extinction or whatever, which is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anti-mass extinction on this podcast. So, okay. So I see we're running out of time, but Yoel, I know you mentioned something off air that I, I hope you'll talk about a tiny bit, which is, is there a philosophical argument uh, such that having or not having kids is you know seen as better or worse? Right. So this is something that I had heard about previously, but that I investigated more in the course of doing research for the show. So there is a philosophical position known as antinatalism. And that is the idea that it is immoral to have children uh, because life is so bad and so painful that you are harming your offspring by creating them. And the proponent of this idea is David Benatar, who is a philosopher. He's actually the chair of the philosophy department at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And he's written a number of uh, books about this. One uh, thing in the this story, this is a New Yorker article that I found that I thought was charming, is that he dedicated his first book to his parents, despite the fact that they chose to have him. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the idea in a nutshell is that... Um, in life, uh, suffering outweighs pleasure, um, if only because we're ultimately going to die. And that by creating a new being who can experience the suffering, we are doing them a disservice. And thus, the compassionate thing to do is to have zero children. Uh, so this is strongly based on the axioms here that you know, suffering is greater than uh, pleasure. Um, and, you uh, uh, you know, I'm... I'm hearing this from you so not not i haven't i didn't read the article um and this is because we die i mean so so what i mean because we die therefore suffering is greater than pleasure i, I don't see right. that well let, let, let me read you a paragraph from the article here um people in short say that life is good benatar believes that they are mistaken 
the quality of human life, contrary to what many people think, actually is quite appalling. Um, that's the that's a quote he writes in The Human Predicament. He provides an escalating list of woes designed to prove that even the lives of happy people are worse than they think. We're almost always hungry or thirsty, he writes. When we're not, we must go to the bathroom. We often experience thermal discomfort. We are too hot or too cold or are tired and unable to nap. We suffer from itches, allergies, and colds menstrual pains, or hot flashes. Life is a procession of, quote-unquote, frustrations and irritations, waiting in traffic, standing in line, filling out forms. Forced to work, we often find our jobs exhausting. Even those who enjoy their work may have professional aspirations that remain unfulfilled. Many lonely people remain single, while those who marry fight and divorce. People want to be, look, and feel younger, and yet they age relentlessly. <laughs> and remind me not to invite him to a party, uh, Yoel. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, that's kind of the fun stuff, though, too. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a I mean, to speak, talk about cherry picking. I mean, sure, all those things, every single one he mentioned is annoying and frustrating and not fun, but there's so many other fun aspects of life that I, you know, he's missed. And I think one could argue. Uh, overshadow many of those negatives. Uh, that's not to say that everyone um, has a good life, and then lots of us suffer, but um, that's a weird list. I don't know. I want to put a question to everybody. Are you glad at this moment in time that you were born? I say yes. I'll just put it out there. I'm very glad I was born and had the opportunity uh, to Yes, exist. I would say yes as well. Yeah, I'm glad I'm alive. Yeah, me too, 100%. Yep. So, I, yeah, I have a tough time relating to this just on an intuitive level. And I, I feel bad, like, not having read the book. And maybe he, like, gives a more compelling. But, yeah, I just don't get the intuition. Okay. So, okay. So, we live good lives. Objectively good lives. Okay. Uh, what if uh, and we're, I don't think we're part of the 1%. We're part of the 5%, whatever. Um, what if you're in the bottom 20%? Um, where you're living below poverty line, uh you might have a home, but you've got home insecurity, you've got food insecurity, maybe, and, and there's a lot more of those people in the world than there are of us. Um, so maybe his argument makes sense given that. I think it's important to consider the many perspectives of life and to consider that other people might give a different response. That being said, I would assume that at any sort of level of, you know, the class hierarchy, if you will, and especially like developed nations and all these things, that still, if you ask the people the basic question of, are you glad you were born or not? I would predict that a majority of people would say yes, even in, you know, developing nations uh, where, you know, maybe, you know, certain resources are not available, like no running water, all those things. I still bet a majority of people would say yes. All right. Did we exhaustively cover our terrain? Uh, well, we exhaustively covered, you know, enough for a, an episode. I'm not sure we covered all aspects of motherhood, uh, fatherhood, and non-childhood, but uh, I think it was fun. So I think the lesson I take away from it is that everybody's partner should be really grateful to them for not leaving them for a hot younger model. <laughs> I'm mostly into that. <laughs> Which, let's be fair, everybody here could pull this off. So, yeah. yes, yeah. I, I agree. I, I, I agree with that. Right on. All right. Thanks, Liz, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank I you really for being here. appreciate yeah, being invited. <laughs> Boom. Boom. 